Let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 40 through 43, Luke chapter 4. I found when we have a kind of a busy uh, ministry weekend, when we come to the scripture, uh, I find that it's best, if we kind of think of it in farmer terminology, not to try to plow up new sections of the field. Uh, After a busy ministry weekend, that, that, that tends to be pretty tough plowing. Uh, But when we come have a busy ministry weekend, really the best thing to do is to plow up or till up old ground uh, that's been previously tilled up before and to sort of refresh everybody's memory over what we already know. Now this year, we've been encouraging everybody to pray with us uh, a certain way of prayer through the week. And on Mondays, what this month, in the month of January, what we want on Mondays is for all of us to be praying the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, on behalf of Fellowship Bible Church. Now, we all know that that prayer begins, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And when we covered this passage a few weeks ago, we gave some examples of what it meant to say your kingdom come. But for how many of us, that still has remained a bit of an uncertainty. What does it mean when we pray, your kingdom come? What, what are we actually praying for when we say, your kingdom come? Well, that's the question I want to answer this morning. I want us to understand what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come. I want us to get a better understanding of the kingdom and what it means that it should arrive. And so we're going to be turning to a variety of passages today and looking up kind of a wide section of Scripture in the New Testament especially. And so I hope you'll follow along, and I hope you might even turn to some of these passages with me. But before we dive in this morning, let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand what it means to pray that your kingdom would come? We want your kingdom to arrive with force and power among us at Fellowship Bible Church and in our valley and in our state. Lord, would you bring your kingdom? Would your kingdom come in all new and powerful ways. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 40. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 40 through 43. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any sick, who, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God. But he, that's Jesus, rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Now, I think we can empathize with that, right? Imagine that there's a person a block away who can heal your diseases, who can take every physical ailment that you have, whether it be hunger or thirst or cancer or a broken bone or a deformed body part, and with a touch or a word, he can heal it. I bet you too would try to wrap your arms around him and keep him close, wouldn't you? So we can't fault these people for saying, Jesus, stay near. Well, what was Jesus' response? 
to this plea for him to stay close. Verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. The entire purpose of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was to preach and to proclaim and to portray with great power that the kingdom of God was here and that the kingdom of God is coming. Now, I'd like to confess to you right now that the kingdom of God as a subject is a very challenging one. I'm not standing before you today trying to give the impression that I have gotten figured out the kingdom of God. It is an extremely wide and multifaceted Bible doctrine. My goal today is for us to get a broad understanding of it, enough enough that we can pray in an informed way, your kingdom come. But I think the best way to study the kingdom of God is not to think of it as an easily definable thing. In fact, if you go to Scripture asking what is the kingdom of God and expecting to find it like a Merriam-Webster dictionary entry, you're going to be greatly disappointed. I think the best way to understand the kingdom of God is the way you would understand a giant mosaic piece of art with all sorts of different um, elements in that mosaic. You've got shells, you've got pieces of indigo, you've got gold and diamonds, even pearls, rubies. You've got sand and the grout and the tiles. And look at each one of them individually, and they can differ greatly even from everything that surrounds it. But it's when you take a step back and look at it in its totality that its shape begins to emerge. And you go, oh, wow, I see that now. I think that's the best way to study the kingdom. Because there's a lot of facets and aspects that don't very much picture, don't, aren't, aren't as similar to each other as meets the eye at initial glance. But in the mosaic of it, when you step back and look at it, you go, oh, okay, I see that. And you start to get a better picture of it. So we have three points this morning in trying to help us understand what the kingdom of God is and how we'll pray that it comes. And the first point is this, is that it is a special reign. It's a special reign, not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N, a special rule, a special reign. It's special, according to the Bible. Now, first, we have to be very clear. First and foremost, God rules over all. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 33 through 34 through 35, we meet the man Nebuchadnezzar. We've met him before, of course, but he's the most powerful man on the planet at the time, the head of gold. And he's filled with pride. And he has a vision that God supplies him, and it's a disturbing one. And even that doesn't shake him from his pride, and God casts him down to the ground. And he loses his sanity temporarily. And at the end of this long trial, he concludes, God reigns in the heavens. And on earth... There is no equal. He does here as he pleases, and nobody, none, can stay his hand. This is a lesson that should have been passed down to his children, but it wasn't. 
And in chapter 5, verse 21, we hear Daniel lecturing young Belteshazzar. Your father had to learn that the Almighty rules without equal. He rules without question. You should have learned this, Belteshazzar, and your kingdom is going to be ripped out of your hand by God Almighty this night. But even though God rules overall, that is not what we find in the New Testament as the kingdom of God. If you're thinking, oh, God's overall rule, God's sovereignty in all things, that's the kingdom of God. Well, that's the reign of God, but when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he means a special subset of that. Because God rules the devil. God rules over wicked people, and he uses them to accomplish his purposes. But they are not part of the kingdom of God. They're subject to God's sovereignty, but they're not part of his kingdom. So, we see that the kingdom of God is a subset of the overall rule of God. And many, there are many who want the blessings of God, but willingly refuse the kingship of his son. They're not in the kingdom. They're under God's authority, but not under his kingdom. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 43. There's tenants. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like this. There's tenants who lent it out. The owner came to collect his due of the farm, and they killed the servants. They killed his son. The tenants did not want his son, the king, ruling over him. And that that man, that, that owner will come, and he will judge them for it. And the Jewish people knew that Jesus was talking about them. There are many, many people in this world who take the name of God, but they reject the authority of his son as his son has revealed himself in the Bible. They reject that authority of the son, and therefore they are not in the kingdom of God. There are others, and this is where it starts to get a little more complicated, who are in the kingdom of God, but are not of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of God is like a net. Now, how many of you have ever gone fishing with a net? Okay. I've I've seen it done. I don't think I've ever actually thrown a net into the sea and tried to pull something out. Those of you who have fished with me would know that even if I had, I wouldn't have caught a thing. The kingdom of God is like a net that you throw into the ocean. Now, does the net catch all the fish in the ocean? No, but it catches some. And the kingdom of God goes further than that. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a net that goes down and catches some people up. And from there, there is an even greater sorting. The good fish are kept, and the bad ones are thrown out. The kingdom of God is like a field where both wheat and weeds grow up together. The weeds are in the kingdom, but they're not of the kingdom. The workers of the field say, should we go take the weeds out? And the owner says, no, I don't want you to because it might disturb the wheat. Leave them, let them grow, and at the end we'll sort them out. And Jesus says, that's like the kingdom of God. There are people who are not of my kingdom, but they're in the kingdom. 
they love the power. They love the might. They love the miracles. And many of them will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I will cast them out and say, I never knew you. These are people like Judas Iscariot who were in the kingdom. But when he was confronted over his greed, chose to put Jesus to death. There are people that the Apostle Paul talks about who love the world more than they love God. There are people who are weeds within the wheat, goats within the pasture of the sheep. Terrifying thing that you can be in and among the kingdom of God, but not of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is both present and future. Jesus goes around in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! And then in Mark chapter 14, verse 25, he says, I'm not going to drink of the vine again until I do so in my Father's kingdom. There's a presentness to the kingdom that it's here now. It's here. It's off to a start. It's rolling. It's like the seed that's already been planted in the ground. It's like the leaven that's already in the dough. But the full flower of it, the consummation of it, the ultimate end of it is not yet here. And when Christ reigns in Jerusalem for a thousand years, that's when the kingdom will be in its full flower. The king will reign for a thousand years, Revelation 20 tells us. So the kingdom is here, it's growing, but it's still future. It's present and it's future. And then the last point on this one. This is a reign that's defined by the good news of God's salvation. You want to know ultimately what the kingdom of God is? It's salvation. It's not an ethic it's not an activity. It's not a place. It's amnesty. It's amnesty. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine a subject being brought before a king. And the, the man in the court says to the king, This subject, O king, has violated your law, he deserves death for all these offenses, and here he stands. And the king says to this subject, I'm offering you amnesty. I'm offering you forgiveness. All you have to do is say you want it. And the subject says, I hear you, I hear you. What if instead I went back to my home and did good things to people around me. Or I, I hear you, I hear you, but what if I gave you 10% of my stuff every year moving forward? What do you think the king would say to him at that point? He would say, I'm not asking for any of that stuff because I already have it. I'm offering you amnesty. I'm offering you forgiveness. And what you're giving me is defiance. That's the difference between people who are among the kingdom and the people who are in the kingdom. 
people who are part of the kingdom. They accept the forgiveness and the salvation and the amnesty that the Lord is offering. They accept it. It's a special type of reign that's specified by salvation. Jesus says this in John 3. He says, Nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You need to be born by the Spirit of God as you ask Jesus to save you from your sins, as you ask Jesus to flood his Spirit into your heart and make you a new creature. So the kingdom of God is a special type of reign. Second point, second point, the kingdom of God is a special type of power. It's a special power. I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 4.20 that the kingdom always arrives with great power. The Apostle Paul's talking to a church, Church of Corinth, and they're saying, oh man, we wish the Apostle Paul, we wish he'd be a better speaker. What we really want is one of these super gifted speakers and uh, a speaker that can do this thing called declamation. We want a professional speaker to be our pastor. And so the church began dividing up over their favorite leaders. I call Peter. I call Apollos. I call, and the super spiritual ones, I call upon Jesus. Some even said, I call upon Paul. And Paul said, leave me out of it. Did Paul die for you? And he realizes that there's troublemakers in that church. And he writes to them. And he says, I am coming to you because I've heard a lot of talk but I'm not coming with talk. I'm coming with the kingdom of God and its power. The kingdom of God always comes with great power. Well, what sort of power are we talking about? Well, first of all, it's the power of bold proclamation. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, which is what we read, Jesus is a preacher. He's going from town to town preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He commissions the 70 to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. It's the mission of the 12 to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, as Acts moves forward and you get these summary statements of people like Stephen or Philip or Peter or even Paul, when he was bound up in jail, it says that he's meeting with the Jews, preaching to them and proclaiming to them the salvation that comes from the kingdom of God. We're told that Jewish leaders, when they saw the boldness of the apostles, couldn't fathom it because they were uneducated men. And they saw this courage and they recognized the transformation and they concluded, this is a power we haven't yet dealt with. Some Jewish leaders tried to tap that power and they were humiliated by it. The kingdom of God comes in great power, and that power is often manifested in bold proclamation. And this bold proclamation is to be our proclamation until Christ returns. Matthew 24, 14, we're told that our commission is to boldly proclaim the message of repentance and faith, this kingdom anthem, until the Lord returns. We ought to be accused of being broken records. Repent, believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. This kingdom comes with great power. Paul says that his arguments 
have the power to tear down strongholds, to wage war against every lofty opinion that's lifted up against God. When God's kingdom comes, when God's kingdom comes, sin dies. The power of sin loses its grip over people's hearts. And far from it simply being an undoing of our sinful tendencies, when the kingdom comes with power, it takes those things that were once great weaknesses of ours and great sins of ours and transforms them into the things that become our greatest strength and asset. So, for example, the Apostle Paul says, Let him who stole steal no more, but let him labor, working with his hands so that he can give. When the kingdom of God comes with great power, the former thief actually becomes the most generous man in the church. When the kingdom of God comes, the lady who constantly fibbed and lied and hedged and told half-truths, suddenly becomes a woman of great integrity and a fountain of wisdom that other ladies look to and rely on for help and counsel. It doesn't happen immediately, as many of the kingdom parables say. It's not the sort of thing that goes poof. But over time, you start to see a radical transformation in people because the reign of God, the reign of salvation, has gotten into their hearts and has begun changing them. I have a passage listed later, but I'll mention it now. The Apostle Paul says the kingdom of God is not in what we drink, it's not in what we eat, but it's in righteousness and faith and in salvation. The currency of the kingdom of God is this transformational change that can only be attributed by the spirit of the living God. It's a special type of power. The kingdom of God is the citizenry of the saved and the forgiven. In Revelation chapter 12, the angels are singing of God's kingdom And they say, your salvation has come. The kingdom of God is synonymous with salvation. It's a people loyal to God. Because you remember my little illustration before of the king who's offering amnesty? It's a collection of people who've taken the amnesty. They said, you're right. I'm treacherous. You're right. I'm a sinner. You're right. I've broken your laws. You're right. I deserve death. Thank you. Praise you. I accept your generous offer of amnesty and forgiveness. And guess what that person does when he leaves the king's presence? He goes and finds another person who took the king up on his amnesty. And he goes and finds another person who took the king up on his amnesty. And they go around and start telling people, hey, the king will give you amnesty if you take it. He's offering it. You become an ambassador, a person of great significance in the kingdom because you're speaking on behalf of the king. The citizenry of the saved say so. 
Matthew 18, 21. Matthew 18, 21. The citizenry of the saved have great capacity to forgive. Peter was asking the Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven? Jesus says, look, the kingdom of God is not like that. And then he goes on to tell the story of a man who had owed 10,000 talents, which is in the neighborhood of trillions of dollars, and refused to forgive a relatively minor debt and how the Lord held that against him. It was a mark that he was not part of the kingdom of God. He was not part of the citizenry of the saved, for he did not extend forgiveness to other people. When the kingdom of God comes to its citizens in power, it transforms them. But it frequently transforms them in a very special way in that it gives them enormous capacity to forgive. There's a, you guys know the song, Amazing Grace, John Newton. John Newton, Amazing Grace. He, for those of you who don't know, John Newton was an African slave trader. He ended up um, becoming a slave himself and was, by every account of people that interacted with him, the worst wretch that anybody had ever met. Mouthy, arrogant, crass. Oh, and the Lord saved him. The Lord remarkably saved him. And he ended up, he ended up being a pastor of a small church, and he had a habit of collecting misfits and sinners and psychological wrecks. And he was so kindly, graciously, compassionately, patiently pour into them day after day from seemingly this bottomless pit of patience and long-suffering with these folks that he'd drawn to himself through the gospel. He rose in prominence into leadership positions and people would ask him to comment on others, especially even false teachers. And Newton was absolutely famous. He would not say a bad thing about anybody. And they'd put before him a heretic. What do you think about this, John? And he would always find something positive to say. (laughs) Now, I'm not advocating sort of a blank positivity. What I am demonstrating, though, is what Jesus said, that he, has been, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And kingdom citizens have a great capacity to forgive because we realize how much the king has forgiven us. And salvation becomes our anthem and praise. Last point. Last point. The kingdom is a special realm. It's a special reign, a special power, and a special realm. The kingdom is at present an unseen force, Bubbling beneath the surface of human affairs, we're told that it's like a mustard seed that germinates and grows into a great tree. It's like leaven that's put into a bundle, and one day it grows. It's, it's off. It's going. It's ta- it has taken root, and it is moving. But at present, it's, it's beneath the surface. It's inside. It's in us. It's growing in people's souls. It's growing in the world around us, not in seen physical types of ways. 
The kingdom is not visible in any tangible way or nationality, according to Acts 28, 28. The Apostle Paul says, listen, I'm going to stop preaching the kingdom of God to you Jewish people. I'm going to take it to the Gentiles because they'll listen. It's not for a people group or this people group or that. It's for anybody who will let the kingdom of God reign in their souls. It's not bound by language. That was part of the point of the Holy Spirit coming in Acts chapter 2, 6 through 8. It was a sign. It was a prophetic sign. But it was also a sign that it wasn't going to be a language thing. It wasn't going to be limited to a certain people or group. The kingdom of God would skip from, from nation to nation, from people group to people group, language to language. The kingdom of God would be for everybody. The kingdom of God would not be visible in some sort of dress. Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees, Luke 20, 46, they love to walk around in their long robes, but they are not in the kingdom. It's not in any outward or visible type of thing. Far, far, far too often, Christians get caught up in law and order. And yes, there is a right and wrong way to run a country or a business or a whatever. But let us not confuse that with what the kingdom of God is and isn't. And it's not visible in any way that we would typically recognize. And this was so confusing to the people of Jesus' day. It confused the disciples. It confused John the Baptist. It confused Pilate. It confused everybody. Jesus had to tell Pilate, look, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have rioted, but my kingdom is not of this world. I reign in hearts. I reign in hearts. God's kingdom reigns in minds and hearts. The kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, is not of what we eat or drink. It's not in our liberty. The kingdom of God is of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, it just occurred to me. My next slide is kind of a conclusion slide. Okay, then. Given what we've learned today, given how we've sort of looked at the mosaic, some of the mosaic of the kingdom of God, how should we pray that your kingdom would come? Really, truly. If all you did was pray for people by name, that they would experience the righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. That so-and-so would have joy today as the kingdom of God resides in their heart. That so-and-so would resonate peace and preach peace as the kingdom of God resides in their hearts. That would be an incredible way to pray that the kingdom would come. So I've got three points here. How should we pray? How should we pray then that the kingdom would come given the points that we've seen? So tomorrow when you pray for the people of Fellowship Bible Church and you say, Lord, your kingdom come, what does that sound like? Number one, we need to pray for ourselves a miracle of transformation. How many of you, and you can raise your hands, would classify yourself as a shy person? 
I realize I'm asking shy people to raise their hands. But if you're a shy person, gather courage and strength and boldness and raise your hands. How many? Raise your hands. If you, I see. Shy people don't lift their hands above their shoulders, apparently. They're like... Honestly, honestly. If I were to take every guilt lever of preaching that I possessed and try to twist your arm into becoming a bold proclaimer of the kingdom of God in your workplace and in your family, I have an honest question for you. Would that work? Honestly, ask, answer yourself the question, would that work? And the answer you probably come up with was, it hasn't worked all these years. <laughs> well, you need a miracle. You need a miracle. I need a miracle. And even people who are bold by nature and extroverts by nature, people like the Apostle Paul, when given the opportunity, are saying, please pray for me that I would have courage. Nobody here feels they have the boldness that they need. Nobody here has the personal wherewithal to be a bold proclaimer of the kingdom. What we need is to pray that God would do a miracle in us. And there's a certain desperation that comes when you realize you're asking for something like that. There's a certain desperation that comes when you realize that you're asking for a miracle. Lord, would you make me and the people around me, people of fellowship, good, loving people, they love you, they love your word, they love each other, but we're a shy people. Would you transform us so naturally and seamlessly that you only sort of pick it up if you were to revisit after a year where you go, oh, wow, that's a change. Would you transform us into bold ambassadors, bold proclaimers of your kingdom? Because that's what the power of the kingdom looks like when it comes. And if we're going to pray that God's kingdom would come, that would be one of the first manifestations. It wouldn't be a change outside of us. It would be a change within us that would then begin to kick off change outside of us. If you want to pray that God's kingdom would come, pray for that. Number two. We need to pray for a miracle of focus. From now focused to forever focused. I'm going to turn over to Matthew 13 very quickly. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 6. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
when we come into possession of the greatest thing we can have, the kingdom of God, suddenly things of this world are jettisoned with joy so that we can have the thing of great value. And what this is, is a total reorienting of life's priorities. And stuff in the here and now is only a means to the kingdom of God ends. And so, we need to pray that God would get our our focus changed and that we would be the sorts of people that with joy would sell all that we have so that we can have the one thing that can never be taken from us. This This isn't a command to go sell all that you have. This is a parable on the perspective of somebody who has the kingdom. They put no stock, no value in anything earthly. And everything that's heavenly and kingdom and eternal means the world to them, and they happily make that trade. That's the idea. It's not a command, it's a perspective. And we need to pray that God would do that miracle of perspective in our hearts. Would would work that change. Number three, we need, to ch- we need to pray for a miracle of regeneration. We need to pray for a miracle of regeneration. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that gets thrown into the sea and some good fish are taken out and some bad fish are taken out of the net and then the angels come and sort them. The kingdom of heaven is like sheep and goats. The sheep are gathered and to Christ's pasture the goats are sent away. The kingdom of heaven is like wheat and tares. They grow up together. God doesn't pull out the weeds for the sake of the wheat. The kingdom of heaven is like seed, good seed that's sown in a field. Sometimes that seed takes root. Sometimes the seed's snatched up before it takes root. Sometimes it's prematurely harmed because of cares of this world or tribulation, but sometimes it takes root and it grows and it produces a harvest of righteousness. There are so many, so, so many people around us who believe that they're in the kingdom. But when they actually read the words of Christ... They're among, a, they're among the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. To use Christ's verbiage, they're the goats. They're the weeds. They're the unwanted fish. Now, how many of you could transform a goat into a lamb by talking to it? or by feeding it a certain diet? Or what if you shored, is that the right word? What if you cut all the wool off of a lamb and you covered the goat up with it? Would that make it a lamb? There's no amount of dressing up. There's no amount of talking. 
There has to be a fundamental miraculous change, doesn't there? It, it has to be that. And again, if we're going to pray that God's kingdom would come, we would pray that many around us would be transformed by God's miracle-working power to make a person born again. To make a person born again a second time by the Spirit of God. And that he would do so by making us, transforming us, shy people, into bold proclaimers of the kingdom so that the kingdom goes forth in power. And with great courage and no thought of what this might mean in the here and now, we proclaim that message, and when people hear it, God takes hold of their heart and transforms them into kingdom citizens. We need to pray for that. So I hope your praying has been informed today. Let's pray tomorrow that God's kingdom would come in these ways. Father, give us grace to pray according to what your Bible says about the kingdom. We so badly need to be transformed by your word. You've, you've shined your grace into our hearts, but we're still so far from ideal and Lord, would you transform us, change us. May the kingdom come into our hearts with great power and make us bold proclaimers of your life-saving message and may we proclaim that life-saving message without fear or anxiety of what it could mean for the here and now and when we do so. May people hear it and accept it and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. May they be brought out from under Satan's rule and into your blessed kingdom that has no end. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.